to this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. On this episode, I'm going to finally get around to starting the series going through my paper on Genesis 1 and how I understand it to be a literary framework serving a polemical function. I do apologize for a few stumbles in the recording. I have a bit of a cold and I think my crying son made an appearance or two in the background, but I hope you all enjoy the content. As always, if you would like to help support the show, please head on over to the blog and click on the Become a Sponsor link or sponsor the show on Patreon. Your gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. If you aren't able to support financially but still love the content nonetheless, please leave a review on iTunes. The more reviews and the higher the score, the better the show will appear in iTunes search. Well, with those intros out of the way, let's dive into this first episode dealing with my view of Genesis 1. Enjoy the show. Flipping the Script, a historical, grammatical, and polemical reading of Genesis 1. I'm often asked my views on Genesis 1 on how we should interpret and understand the creation narrative. Much ink is spilt over whether or not Genesis 1 supports a young earth creationism or old earth creationism, and if it should be read and understood as literal history or as allegory. Due to my work in apologetics and considering that the creationism debates are one of the most contentious issues in the field of apologetics, it's not surprising that I get these questions rather frequently. However, for the most part, I find the questions posed by young earth creationists and old earth creationists advocates to be somewhat puzzling because both positions appear, to me at least, to be asking thoroughly modern questions of a completely ancient text. I simply cannot understand how anyone believes that the author of Genesis had the hydraulic cycle of the early earth in mind when writing about the separation of the waters above and the waters below in the second millennia BCE. It seems that they failed before they even exegete a single word, a falsus principis proficici. A rather striking irony occurs at this point that I and several others have noticed. Here, the literalists find unlikely allies in the hyper-literalism of critics like the New Atheists and Infidel.org-style atheistic fundamentalists. The two polar opposites stand shoulder to shoulder in defending a hermeneutical view that has most of the academic world baffled and shaking their heads in disbelief anyways. However, even though the discussion of this paper clearly has entanglements with a broader audience interested in those questions, and deeper apologetical implications as well, I will be focusing this paper solely as a part of an ongoing in-house discussion 
concerning the proper exegesis of the text alone, and will leave interactions with the new atheists and anti-biblicist critics to the side. I will argue in this paper that the best understanding of Genesis 1 is not a scientific account of creation, creation a la young earth creationism or old earth creationism, nor is it a kind of demythologized or wholly non-historical plagiarism of other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, a la Delik, Gunkel, and Enns. But rather, it is a purposeful literary and polemical taunting of a religious and cultural foes of the early Israelites as they were about to enter the land of Canaan in order to steer them toward religious fidelity to Yahweh alone. As a first step to arriving at a proper interpretation of Genesis 1, we are required to set the passage within its broader historical grammatical context. If one holds, even broadly, to the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, which I do, then the use of polemics in other areas of the Pentateuch can inform us of the kind of literature that we find in Genesis 1. However, one does not need to hold to Mosaic authorship or even to a possible single author view in order to accept the overall thesis of this current paper. I do think, though, that such a view, even if one accepts of some redactive activity, is helpful for understanding some of the intercontextual polemical links between Genesis 1 and Exodus that we will observe. Let me here give a brief example of how Mosaic authorship, or at least single author, a single author around the time leading up to the conquest of Canaan, helps us understand the polemical links between various passages in the Pentateuch. That is, we can observe ways in which the author of the Pentateuch would have been theologically interpreting historical events to act as a polemic within their current context in and around the time of the conquest. For example, if we accept this view, then historically the text would have been composed largely while Israel was camped in the plains of Moab or while they were still early on into the conquest under Joshua. During this time, the spies would have gone into the land and come back with a negative report. Quote, and there we saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. End quote. Numbers 13.33 In Numbers 13, the Nephilim were related to the sons of Anak, a purely human tribe. And the spies, driven by fear, exaggerated their size, while Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, rebuked them for their fear. This later historical event may be useful in understanding the telling of the flood narrative in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, 1-4, we read, quote, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Here, 
It is plausible that the author was showing that there were Nephilim in the land during the days of Noah, and, in the same way that Yahweh had handled them easily when he judged the ungodly seed, and spared the godly seed from out of the waters, he would still be able to vanquish the Nephilim in the land as he brought Israel into their, her inheritance. While there are other thematic and intertextual elements taking place in Genesis 6, we can see that the telling of the flood account would not only renew the promise that Yahweh could cleanse an evil people from the land, a hopeful reminder for the Israelites about to purge the land of the wicked Canaanites, but also, more specifically, that the mighty Nephilim have never stopped Yahweh before, and so there is nothing for Israel to fear in taking the land. There were mighty warriors during the days of Noah, just as there were in Canaan, but Yahweh was able to sweep them away and then away then, and he will do so for them now, if only Israel remains obedient. While there were certainly other factors involved in the two different narratives, we can see how a holistic approach to interpreting these texts canonically and with an eye to intercontextuality helps us better understand the authorial intent of both passages, specifically in how the telling of an earlier event can be told in such a way as to have ramifications for the Sitzenleben in which a later text was composed. This short excursus should show us in principle how intertextuality and intercontextuality and allusion can help us to better understand various Old Testament texts and their relationship to their historical setting. We will now briefly touch on allusion as it will be useful to understand what is happening textually during these polemical literary sections. In addition, what we see from the text of the Pentateuch is an abundant use of polemics throughout the five books, specifically in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. However, before we look at our main passage in Genesis 1, we will consider another portion of the Pentateuch that employs polemical theology in order to taunt the polytheism of the neighboring nations and to serve as an encouragement and a reminder to Israel to stay faithful to the one true God, Yahweh. That event were the plagues of Egypt. The plague narrative is an exemplar of the kind of polemical literature that we find in the Old Testament and will serve as a strong paradigm within which we can better understand the polemics in Genesis 1. But first to illusion. Identifying illusion. One literary device that is vital to our understanding of the interpretive inter interpretation being presented presently is that of literary illusion. Unlike explicit or didactic language, an illusion is a much subtler and indirect form of communication that relies on a reader's knowledge of a prior source. The writer will often employ allusion in order to defamiliarize a prior text to their audience, and this is especially the case in the use of polemics. The author who employs the allusion will suggest an image, phrase, theme, or motif from a prior text, but will place it in a new context, often one that is surprising, bewildering, or even discordant and with how they had previously understood the concept in the prior text. A modern example might be the phrase, five minutes to midnight. If someone was asked an expectant father when his baby is due, 
If that father answered, we are five minutes to midnight, anyone raised during the Cold War or familiar with that period of history would instantly understand the reference being made to the doomsday clock, which was used to count down the likelihood of nuclear war based on threat levels. It was an iconic symbol of impending cataclysmic upheaval. The father would not need to spell out the entire history of the idiom or expressly explain the sense of impending world change that he is about to experience with the birth of a child. By employing the allusion to that one simple idiom, he can paint a whole picture replete with sentiment and emotion, and anyone who understands the context from which the idiom is drawn would get the joke. However, biblical allusion to to non-canonical texts has been a feature commonly used by critical scholars and mythicist pseudo-scholars alike to undermine the credibility, historicity, and reliability of the biblical text. This is often done by sourcing the text for any parallel to no matter how arbitrary, and this method is often rightly criticized for a kind of ideologically driven parallelomania. To avoid the criticism that an appeal to allusions here in this paper is comparable to the vague, vulgar, and superficial parallelomania of long-rejected theories like Jesus mythicism and its failed attempt to coax a solar messiah motif out of little to no evidence, or that the author of Genesis was just thoughtlessly stealing myths from the neighboring cultures, This present paper will examine and identify valid uses of illusion by employing John Paulin's three basic criteria for establishing the presence of a legitimate literary illusion. Paulin argues that a literary critic can be confident in their assessment concerning the positive presence of an illusion in a work of literature by observing a. verbal parallels, b. thematic parallels, and c. structural parallels. By adhering to these standards for responsibly identifying literary allusions, accusations of vague or superficial parallelomania can be avoided. The role of illusion in polemics will become clearer as as this paper progresses. Polemics and the Exodus Tradition In this section, we will explore several cases where the author of the Book of Exodus engages in polemics against the Egyptian mythological view of the world. This will be brief as it is only included to serve as a paradigmatic example of what we observe in the earlier chapters of Genesis. However, before exploring the role of polemics in the Exodus narratives, a proper understanding of the nature and function of polemics must be first presented. A polemic is a, quote, strong verbal or written attack on someone or something, end quote, and typically will employ a kind of illusory Trojan horse. The term is derived from the Greek term polemikos, which means something that is or for war. And so polemics has often been viewed as a kind of conceptual or literary warfare. 
John Curra defines polemics as found in the Hebrew worldview and literature, epitomized in the Old Testament, as the author or redactor's use of, quote, the thought forms and stories that were common in the ancient Near Eastern milieu and applying them to the person and work of Yahweh and not to the other gods of the ancient world, end quote. The ancient Hebrew author would take an allusion to a known contemporary text and inhabit that allusion with a new meaning to glorify Yahweh over the gods of the pagan nations surrounding Israel. Numerous scholars have noted the familiarity of the author of Exodus with the book of Genesis. The introductory sections of the book shows that the author was aware of the lineage found in Egypt of the patriarch Jacob and that it numbered 70 persons in Exodus 1-15, through which is a cross-reference of Genesis 46-27. He also sees the rapid reproduction of children of Abraham in Egypt as a fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the land, which is found in Exodus 1-7, which is a cross-reference of Genesis 1-28. Others have noted that the connection between Pharaoh's response to the increase of the Jews as derivative of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11. Many have also noted that the reliance of Exodus 1-15 through upon the early chapters of Genesis, and some will go so far as to say that the plagues function as a kind of decreation, and the Exodus from Egypt itself a kind of recreation. Gage states, quote, The Exodus-Isodus history of the Hexateuch is so structured as to be a redemptive reenactment of creation, end quote. Currid also argues that the plagues were an act of God in reducing order into chaos, and that the Exodus was an act of bringing order out of chaos. We can also observe other grammatical connections between Exodus and the creation account in the use of terms like tenanim. This is the Hebrew term often translated as a great sea creature or sea monsters in Genesis 1.21. It is important to note that Tananim is used later in the Pentateuch in the great showdown between Moses and Aaron on the one hand and Pharaoh and his magicians on the other. We are told that Aaron threw down his tannin in challenge to Pharaoh and then that the magicians answered the challenge by taking their staffs and throwing them down as tenanim. At this point, the power of the polemical assault becomes concrete when Aaron's tannin devours all the tenanim of Pharaoh's magicians. This tangible polemic was clear. Yahweh is the mighty tannin with the divine right to rule, and Pharaoh is not. A striking polemic once we consider that the cobra was the symbol of the might and authority of Pharaoh. Much like the earlier discussion of the Nephilim, it is apparent that the author of the Exodus narrative is clearly familiar with the text of Genesis 1 and feels free to use similar polemical applications. Pharaoh, represented by a coiled tannin, is just another part of Yahweh's creation with no power and authority except what he has been given by God. Another clear example of the Old Testament polemic against its historical setting is the use of the phrase outstretched or strong hand or arm. There's some type of variation, either outstretched hand, outstretched arm, strong hand, strong arm. 
We're told in Exodus 6.6 that it is by Yahweh's outstretched arm that he will accomplish his mighty acts of judgment and will redeem the children of Abraham from Egypt. In Exodus 32.11 and Deuteronomy 6.21, we're told that the Lord overthrew Pharaoh and defeated the powers of Egypt by his mighty hand. These descriptions of a mighty hand and an outstretched arm are stated together in Deuteronomy 7.19 and 26.8 and blended together in Exodus 15.12 and 16. These two terms, however, did not arise in Israelite culture. During Egypt's Middle Kingdom period, roughly 2030 to 1640 BCE, these became established terms to describe Pharaoh. In the hymn of Sennusaret I, which is around 1965 to 1920 BCE, we read, quote, Moreover, he is a mighty man who achieves with his strong arm a champion without equal, end quote. More relevant to the context of the composition of Genesis is a statement by Tutmosi II in 1492 to 1479 BCE during the Hiscus period, where Tutmosi II describes himself as, quote, great in power and mighty in arm, end quote. Following after him, Tutmosi III in 1479 to 1425 proclaimed himself to be quote, great of arm, end quote, and that his military victories were from, quote, his very own arms, end quote. Following this, Amenhotep II in 1427 to 1400 BCE is said to, quote, smite foreign rulers of the far north. He is a god whose arm is great, end quote, and later is called, quote, good god, strong of arm who achieves with his arms, end quote. Similar statements can be found describing Tutmosis IV in 1400 to 1390 BCE, Tutankhamun 1336 to 1327, and Seti I 1294 to 1279 BCE. We can find other examples of great arms among the descriptions of Ramesses II, Seti II, Ramesses III, and others. This simple example of Yahweh's strong arm is helpful to understand how polemics functions in the Old Testament specifically in the Pentateuch. The intention would have been rather clear to the original audience. Pharaoh claimed to have a mighty hand and a strong arm, but it is actually Yahweh who has the mighty arm. This point was not lost on Jethro, who proclaimed in Exodus 18.10-11, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly." When the author of Exodus was looking for ways to describe the conflict between Pharaoh and Yahweh, he found a ready allusion in the Pharaonic cult worship motif in his Egyptian context. He did not need to fully write out, quote, Pharaoh thinks he is the mighty arm, but Yahweh is the one with the mighty hand, end quote. With a simple statement of the idiom, mighty hand, which he applied to Yahweh, Instead of the normal subject, Pharaoh, 
all of his readers in that historical setting would have gotten the polemical joke and understood the ironic twist that the author was intending to make without any further description needed. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Join us next time as I continue my paper on polemics and the literary framework in Genesis 1. If you have any questions,